Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. But the reason I wanted to pray ahead of time is because there's about 50-ish people at the youth camp in the, uh, in C- at CJ Strike, and I wanted to just pray for their time, and as they come back, in case you can get the lights as well, um, I wanted to pray for them, and then we will read our scripture and get into it. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in um, your children as they serve you and love you to those leaders that are faithfully giving their time, sleeping in tents with absorbent amount of teenagers uh, trying to show them who you are. I pray, God, as there were inevitably connections and struggles and difficulty, as always comes with lack of sleep and exhaustion, I pray that they would, um, they would see themselves connected to your family. They would see themselves connected to you um, through Jesus Christ. God, that, that whatever you do at the camp will come back and, and, and they will be a changed, a changed group of people. And I pray for the students that weren't able to go, that they would be molded into this change. And, and for those that were there, God, I pray that they would lead. They would lead this. Pray that the, the church would look dynamically, drastically different because of the faith of these youth students. And God, we know that you are doing a mighty work there, and we're excited to see it, even as um, I just know there's many great stories of time already, God. But um, I pray that we wouldn't, as a church, see that as a, as a separate group of people, but would just see them as a part of our family. That you get them packed up where they would be able to display patience with each other as they are tearing down camp, inevitably exhausted, and that they would get home safely, Lord. We thank you for the way that you are at work, and, and um, we know that you have accomplished much in the hearts of these kids. And God, we look forward to seeing how you use that for your glory in the days to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it's a long section of Scripture, so I'm not going to make you stand up for it. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 through 36. Let me read it. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from, from afar, and before, the, they, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. 
on their way to carry it down to Egypt. When then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, us not, let not our hands be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianites, traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This narrative has a bunch of different ways that we could teach this, this one section. There's a number of really powerful things that we could take out of this and make applicable for us today. But what I wanted to do is stay true to what we said we were going to do when we started going through Genesis, which was this, this idea that we are to see that regardless of our circumstances, we, we can thrive. We can thrive regardless of our circumstances when we find ourselves in God's story. And what we see here, the author here, what he's doing is he's, he's weaving together a story for us to see all that is happening, all that is going on to show us that God is still at work in his story. I would encourage you to listen to the last few weeks as uh, it's a big part of understanding this story. But in this section, we see that everything goes wrong, very, very wrong. Anger is a poison. This is just a sidebar. Anger is a poison and we see the fruit of it in this text. What I wanted to do today is, is tell you a story, but to focus on one aspect that I think is vital for us to understand in this narrative, that evil does not prevail. See, we rush to the end, and we know, well, Joseph is gonna, he's gonna be freed, and he's gonna be above all of his brothers, and he's gonna be saving the people, but we gotta remember that this was I mean, to that point of him being raised up out of prison was about 13 years. Think about the, the loss that's here. Don't let ourselves rush to the end. Imagine if you were experiencing this kind of trauma for 13 years on end. See, we know, we know, as one scholar says, that everything from the ill-conceived Aaron to the chance meeting with the stranger combined to deliver Joseph into his brother's hands. Yet it would turn out that God had been as watchful in his hiddenness as in any miracle. There are two extremes. This is important for us to understand. There are two extremes in Dothan that we see God's miracle happen. We see Elisha out of 2 Kings when all the, the chariots and horses are surrounding him and he says, open up the eyes of his servants so he can see that the chariots and the angels that are fighting for him are way bigger then the number of those that are attacking him, the, the angels strike them with blindness and they go. So we see God miraculously save Elisha in that moment. We also see God miraculously save Joseph in this moment, but for another end. See, in Joseph's mind at this time, there's no way he could have said, this is how I become the one that everyone bows down to. We can't lose sight of that. See, Joseph had been sent by Jacob to give a report to the brothers of their work. We talked about the family dynamic two weeks ago. Uh, either Jacob is 
completely clueless to the dissension that happens between his brothers, or he just doesn't care. But he sends him either way, and, and which tells us that the reports that Joseph gives, the tales that Joseph is giving his father are important to his father, and he likes him, so he wants him to keep doing this. The fact that Joseph isn't with his brothers shepherding shows, I mean, maybe he had a cold and you know, missed his bus or missed the tag. I think maybe, most likely, his father wasn't making him do the work, which would just add to that hostility. It's a three days journey, about 50 miles to Shechem, and then north another 14 miles to, to um, where they are, uh, uh, Dothan, sorry, <laughs> I forgot it. And, and the coat is bright enough. This is important for us to understand. As they're walking up to the brothers, I want to set the scene here. The coat is, is ornate and bright enough that they can tell and recognize him from a long distance. I, I kind of picture the coat was probably something like what Jonathan would wear, you know, bright and like, like you can tell it from a long distance. So like, that's probably what it was. But they could see it from a long distance and the robe was a constant reminder of their hatred to him. And so they used the robe to betray him. What I wanted to do today is I wanted to look at, um, we, see, we see four offenses that the brothers do today. And I want to use this as a plea for us to recognize when sin is working itself in our hearts. See, because, because we know that these brothers end up being reconciled and we know the story. And we'll talk immensely about all different kinds of things we can learn from this narrative. But see, I wanted us to recognize that these brothers, they, there's four pivotal points, four four offenses, four massive sins that they do that, that lend themselves to doing this and then bring about all kinds of atrocities. And again, it's easy for us to go, yeah, yeah, but God was using it, which is where we get the big line, what you had meant for evil, God did for good in Genesis 50. But when we rush to that, we lose sight of the fact that Joseph is experiencing immense evil. And there's many of you here sitting today that are the, the victim of evil. And there's many of us today that are the perpetrators of evil. And so what I wanted to do out of this section of Scripture is help us see a couple ways with which we can navigate around the evil that we are in. When we see God working out His plan in His story through these characters that do these atrociously horrible things, we know on this side of Jesus that there is a way for us to walk. It doesn't have to be the same way as these brothers. And so in verse 19, we see him pick up here. He says this. He says, he says they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now, it's important for us to understand this. Uh, this, this, this word in Hebrew, the way the sentence is said, it's like, here comes a master dreamer. It's, it's a sarcastic thing. It's, it's, it's a statement where he's saying, look, this dreamer's coming. This person's coming. And, and he thinks he's got it all figured out. And then they end with, let's see how his dreams come. So we know that the, the reason why the brothers want to harm Joseph in this moment is to make those dreams not come true. Now, isn't it interesting that they didn't believe in the dreams, but yet they're willing to go to murdering their brother to make sure that the dreams that they didn't believe in wouldn't happen? Far from preventing Joseph's dreams, the brothers don't know this, but they're actually become the agents to fulfilling the dream. This is God working his hand here, but this is the first offense the brothers did. They plan evil. They, they sit and they say the evil out. Maybe people will think it, but, and maybe not all 10 brothers took part in the plan, 
But all 10 brothers were present. And all 10 brothers didn't say anything. But see, the first, the first step of evil, the first step of, of, of evilness is when we start to plan these things. Or maybe we don't plan it, we just see it happening and do nothing. And this is the first issue that they have in sin. In Genesis 4, 7, all the way back to Cain and Abel, God says this, it says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We see that that sin isn't something to be played with. Sin isn't something that we should even allow our minds to plan. And and many of us are like, well, I've never planned to kill my brother. Right. I, I believe that. I hope not. But we've planned to do other things that are evil. We've planned to lie. We've planned to operate without humility, as Jeff was saying. We've made all kinds of plans in our lives to do the things that we know are evil. And God tells us, look, it's, it's crouching at the door. It's ready to, ready to snap at you. And yet most of us, we, we tend to teach sin like a lion that needs to be tamed. We try to teach our sin how to sit and stay. We try to keep it, you know, if we can just, if we can just get it leash trained, then maybe it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. Instead of running from sin, Instead of, instead of speaking up when something evil is in front of us, we, we recoil back and say, oh, it's not going to affect me. I won't take part in it. 1 Peter 5.8 says it this way. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The brothers didn't run. Maybe it was Simeon. And Levi that came up with the idea because we know what they're capable of, what they did at Shechem. But Issachar, any other one of the brothers, Dan, none of them say anything. And they have this moment where they want to end his life. 2 Timothy 2, 22 says this, so, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. As the first offense was they planned evil or they say or do nothing about the evil that is planned instead of running from this. This is where we get in trouble is that we just, we just sit with a, a lion that is waiting to devour us, that is seeking to destroy us and we, we try to buy the right kind of biscuits to feed it and train it instead of running. Verse, verse 19, or verse 21, it says this. It says that, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. A, a glimmer of hope, right? A, a moment of bright spot. Okay, when Reuben hears it, he rescued them out of their hands. And, and he said, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Reuben, who is the eldest son, and we talked about the family dynamic, and again, I'll just let you go back and listen to it for the sake of time. But as the eldest son, he's the one responsible for all the other siblings. He's the one that's responsible for the flocks. All of it rests on him. He was also the one that would get the inheritance of the firstborn. Now, because of the favoritism that Jacob is showing, most likely, and all of the brothers assumed, that Joseph was going to get the firstborn 
inheritance and not them. So Reuben here, he says, hey, let's not kill him. And it tells us, we get, we get told here that it's to, it's to save him so he can return him to his brother. Now, now, why does Reuben want to do that? That's the question I think many of us have to ask because if it was, if it was just to appease, he's, he's trying to find a creative way to work with sinful people and hoping that he doesn't become the, the object of their anger or evil plans. I think Reuben is doing one of many things we can see. Maybe he's trying to pay amends for the fact that he had slept with his father's wife. Maybe he's trying to get in the good graces there. Maybe he knows that Joseph is going to be the firstborn in the inheritance, so he's trying to get in Joseph's good graces because, well, he'll ultimately be underneath him. Most of it seems like it's self-preservation, but we also see this idea of him not fully removing him, but putting him into a pit. Now, this would have been a, a, a water pit is what it was, and it was dried up, which is probably some of the, the truth of the land becoming barren that we see later on when Egypt when he's in Egypt. But this is an area that he would have been done. And when it says they stripped him of his clothes, guys, this is the same Hebrew word of skinning an animal. So it's a violent stripping of his robe. So they beat him, strip his robe, and then they throw him in a pit. And then they throw him in the pit. And it's interesting. The, the author is, is silent here about what Joseph says. We don't, we don't get anything of this. We don't get Joseph's statements. We don't get anything. In fact, we know that he does say something because in Genesis 42, later on, when Joseph is, is playing a little bit with his brothers, we'll get to that, obviously. When he's playing with his brothers, he says this in Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty. It's not, hey, we saw him crying. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Fourteen years later, they're still believing that the reason why they're experiencing difficulty is because of what they did to their brother in that moment. So Joseph is pleading. He's screaming. He's begging. And they're ignoring him. What makes this worse is if we look at verse 25 and we see what's the first thing it says. Then they sat down to eat. Most likely eating some of the delicacies that Joseph would have brought from home. They, they literally, they, they, their hearts are so callous. The plan of evil seems so good that they can beat their brother, throw him into a pit. Now, again, we talked about it last week. Joseph was kind of an arrogant punk. He, he made some mistakes, but let's be honest. No one deserves this. And, and then they just sit down and eat a cheeseburger. Probably not that, just so you know. They sit down and just eat a meal. To be able to hear your brother's cries and pleads and go through this, it, it, it displays such a hardness of heart. Which brings us to the second offense they do. See, it's, it's, it's one thing to plan evil. It's one thing to sit by and not say anything when evil happens. But then when you go through with evil, it's another offense that happens here. And we see this, that they, they pull him out of the pit. Reuben is gone, most likely. Reuben is, the, as the eldest son, as he's 
made this plan. He's thinking, okay, I'll go tend to the flock and, and everyone will kind of follow me and then I'll come back once they're there and do this. So we, know, we see that Reuben shows back up and realizes like, uh-oh, like he isn't there. And so they, um, they have this idea and it's, in, it's really interesting language what Judah says here because Judah stands up for, for Joseph now, at least it seems. They sat down to eat. And looking up, up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, come, let us sell him, the Israelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. So on, on the surface, it looks like Judah's standing up for his brother, but we also see that Judah's just as good getting rid of his brother. The language that's being used here, the let not our hand be upon him, is the same language that, that, that is used with Saul when he hopes the Philistines will kill, um, kill David and he will be guiltless. It's this idea of saying, I'm not going to kill him, but, but if they do it, what's, what, what, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not guilty with this. Even though the laws prohibit, prohibit them from selling a slave in this way, selling a family member. But he says, he's our own flesh and blood. Do not, do not spill the blood. And this is, this is important because we don't know at what level this family is operating in their understanding of Yahweh at this time. We know that they have some idea of it. Jacob would have passed on a bunch of things. Like he had seen the, 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 the vision of the ladder to, to, to heaven. We know that he had wrestled with God. So there's some aspect of God in this, but they're, they're smart enough to know that this same language was used when Abel's blood cried out to God for what Cain had done. And so he's saying, look, don't, don't put this on us. This will cry out. God will do this. Let's just sell him. Let's, let's sell him for about what is $76 today is what that's worth. Which is, uh, one scholar said this, this is the first recorded act of of child trafficking. Let's sell him. What profit do we have? Judah's idea was to seize the opportunity to propose propose to sell Joseph. Uh, Aaron, teaching a long time ago about the, the mob, talked about the mental gymnastics that it takes for people to do the things that they do. This is one of those situations to be in a spot where you can hate someone so much that you can say, well, I don't want to kill him. I just, I just want to sell him as a slave and let him just live his life as a slave, apart from his family, apart from the protection, apart from his inheritance. Although his speech was designed to lessen their crime by selling their brother rather than murdering him, it actually underscored how wicked their deed was. They sold their own brother into slavery. So this is the second offense. They, they go through with the evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us this. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is, look, that means that there, there isn't some new temptation that, that man hasn't been battling with. This is just, it's just always a temptation. And he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Many are like, wait, 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 I feel tempted beyond my ability all the time. It says, but with temptation, he will also provide the weight of escape, the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And now, what this is not saying, hear this, what this text is not saying is it's not saying that you won't experience trials or difficulty. What this is saying is that whenever evil is encroaching at our door, God is equally there saying, don't do it. I have given you the power to walk away from this. 
Run from this. Don't follow through. See, at any moment, any one of these brothers could have stopped and said, this is wrong, we can't do this. For this to work, they had to all be on the same page because they couldn't go back to dad and, and have one tell them a different story. For this to work, they had to all equally go through the plan. So whether or not the plan was theirs originally and they were just silent, you see, you see how this works? Many of us are like, well, I'm not, I'm not the one doing the evil. I'm just silent at it. You can only sit silent for so long before you become a perpetrator of it. This is their second offense. They, they go through with the evil. It's important for us to understand that the way out again may not be to escape the trial or the, or the, or the temptation, but to stand up in it. We see that in James 1. He says, don't be surprised when you experience these trials. Right? They're, they're creating something greater in you. So Joseph now is, 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 is getting sold off. He's, he's been put in shackles. He's been sold for some, some silver, which is like $76. That was kind of the going wage for a child in slave at that time. It's, it's pretty standard. It's not any kind of money that they would have been like, cool, we're rich, we can go do what we need to do now. And here, Joseph is off. Now, now just pause for a second and put yourself in, in Joseph's position. A 17-year-old kind of snobby had everything your way for so long. And now in this moment, all of your brothers have stripped you of a gift that you apparently love so much you wore all the time stripped you of your family rights. Joseph doesn't know that he's going to end up as Potiphar's servant. He doesn't know that he's going to end up meeting Pharaoh himself and being second to only him. He doesn't know any of that in this moment. All Joseph knows is that he has been sold wrongfully by his brothers into slavery. And they didn't have Amber Alert then or internet Remember, this is a three-day journey. Three-day journey to where they are. At best, that's like moving quick. Joseph pretty much knows, like the brothers know, we'll never see each other again. It's over. I'll never see dad. I'll never see moms. I'll never see brothers. I'll never see sisters. I'll never see home again because I've been sold into slavery. This is what evil does, guys. It makes you do stupid things that make no sense. So they go through with it. And then as if that wasn't enough, now they have to figure out how to lie to save themselves in their offense. And this is the third offense they do is they lie about it. Do you see this progression? This is the same progression of all of us, although many of us haven't sold our brothers into slavery. I'd be willing to bet that none of us have, okay? Okay. But this is the same progression. We, we plan it or we do say nothing, do or say nothing about it. We take part and go through with it. And then, because we realize we've done wrong, we lie about it. We cover it up. We completely lie. And this is why when, you, when you're at this level, let me, just, let me just help us understand. When you're at this level of, of sin and defense, you're not thinking logically. You're insane. And so they come to their dad with the robe that they are 
keenly aware is Joseph's. Let's just make sure we all know that. It's not a, there's not a question in this, is this your son's robe? They know exactly whose robe it is. They ironically slaughter two young goats to deceive their father who slaughtered two young goats to deceive his father. Do you see what happens when sin is left? Guys, sin does not bring about holiness. Sin brings more sin. Unrepentant sin brings more sin. Calamity upon calamity. They, they dip the, the robe in, in, in the blood of goats and they deceive their father and they don't even have to tell their father that a beast had, had done it. Although that was the line that Judah came up with. Remember, let's tell him that a fierce animal did it. <laughs> Jacob just laps it up, believes it. A fierce animal has destroyed my son. See, it's bad enough to, to plan evil or to not say or do anything when you see evil. It's, 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 it's even worse to, to do that evil. But then to, to lie about that evil to people that you care about. Imagine the weight of it. In fact, some of you can, can, can feel this. We, we feel the weight of, of carrying the lie. It gets heavy. And so he tells him he did this, and, and Jacob is completely distraught. His favorite son has been killed and is gone forever. And then, in a weird but sad turn of events, the brothers who perpetrate the evil are trying to comfort the father whom they did the evil to. Imagine how hollowing that must be to be in a spot where you're so engulfed in sin that even trying to do a good thing hollows you out because you know exactly what you've done. What breaks my heart, church, is that many of us, many of you are are that way today. You're you're carrying a weight and you're believing that the lie is is, is enough or that the the inaction is enough. And it's, it's, it's a hollowing you out so that even when you try to do that which you know God would want you to do. It has no value. It has no weight to it. And this is the fourth offense they do. They live with the evil. It's one thing to plan it. It's another thing to do it. It's a totally different thing to lie about it, but then to just continually live with it? We don't hear much about the brothers' lives until they recircle back with Joseph, which is, by the way, I mean, almost 20 years later. We get a few other parts in here because this is the, this is the genealogy of Jacob, and so we have to follow the line like the story of God tells us to find where is the Messiah coming. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? But guys, this is horrible. At any moment, these brothers could have repented. Even at, at a moment, and I, I skipped over this, and I want to come back to it here. Um, the brothers uh, didn't, didn't repent of what they were doing. But there was that moment where you saw it in Reuben, right? 
Reuben tears his robe. That is a that is an, an action of grief. That is an action of uh, sorrow, of sadness. It's a, it's a deep moment of like, ah, oh, what have we done? And in a moment, it seems like Reuben's showing like, oh, I, this shouldn't have happened. And this is, this is wherever you are, from planning evil to lying about evil to doing evil or doing evil, lying about evil, or living with evil. This is, this is the problem where we get in today, church, is that we, we, we don't let ourselves go all the way to godly sorrow. We, we, we start with worldly sorrow because look what Reuben does. He has this, this moment of, of what have I done? What shall I become? Almost he's, he's more worried about, again, like his father was more worried about the consequences of what his brother, what his sons did to the people of Shechem when, when Dina was raped as opposed to the atrocity of what happened to Dina. His brother seems to be more concerned about what's going to happen to him as opposed to what, the, what happened to Joseph in this moment. And the reason why we know this is because that moment of grief, it seems real torn robe, declaring, what shall I do? All those things. And then it's quickly turned into, well, how do I cover this up? And this is, had a mentor once say to me, he said, they always, godly sorrow always looks the same. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, they start out looking identical. Both of them have snot-filled Kleenex, deep confessions of, I know what I've done, it's wrong. But godly sorrow, it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, says, for godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It is very important for us to hear this. Those can look the same for a very long time. But they won't look the same forever. People can walk, I've seen it over and over again, can walk with worldly grief for a very long time that looks like godly grief, only to be shocked by the pain of it. Year, two, three, four, five, later. It's, it's, not, a, it's not enough to just feel bad. This is, in any moment, I guarantee, I guarantee these brothers have haunted dreams and visions about what they did after this moment. Even the most callous of people. They had to because what did they say all those years later when Joseph was messing with them? It's coming back to haunt us. It was front and center. That was the biggest offense of their life that they believe that that is why they will be struck down by God. That is why he is gonna come after them. Because why? Because they lived with it. At any moment, these, these men could have turned from this, repented of it, and walked out that repentance which would have brought itself many massive consequences at their life. But those consequences in their mind were greater than walking with God. And so they would rather live, or sorry, those consequences were greater than than repenting and walking with God. So they'd rather live without the consequences and not walking with God and live with the consequences and walking with God. And and church, that's, that's us. We do the same thing today. We, we, we have got many little pet lines crouching at our door. And every now and then they bite us. And we have an opportunity to turn from, repent, walk to the Lord. Let him do what he is going to do. Four offenses. There is the 
planning evil or doing or saying nothing about the plan of evil. Doing evil, lying about evil, and living with evil. I read a scripture earlier to you guys, and I only read one verse of it. And it was First uh, Peter 5, 8. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And, it, and I just ended it there. Now, the problem with this verse is it doesn't end there. And this is one of the difficulties about, about reading scripture, like just popping in and out. Peter goes on and gives us exactly what to do. If you, it's not enough to just be sober-minded and watchful. In fact, like, don't do these, he's seeking someone to devour. Instead, he goes, he goes on and says, resist him, in, in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. What is your faith? A gift from God, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That is important for us to hear right now. If, maybe some of you, that's all you need to hear, is that the sufferings you're going through, there are other people that are going through the exact same sufferings as you. And there are those that have walked through those sufferings and have prevailed. And after you have suffered a little while, which I know, I know some of you are like, man, this is not a little while, Bren. This has been a long while. Again, imagine how Joseph feels. A little while for him was 13 years. After you have suffered for a little while, this is, this is the key. Church, hang on this the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ with will himself, not, not leave it to someone else. This is so good. He's not gonna say, oh, Bren, I, I don't have time for you. I'll have someone else help you. He says, no, no, no. God himself will restore you. Look at this. this is, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the God who doesn't break promises. This is the God that we traced all the way back from the beginning all the way to the Messiah a few weeks ago or a month ago that, that kept his promise this entire time. And it says right here, he, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, establish you, confirm you, strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let it be so. In the New Testament, the scholar says that there's a Paul cataloged the persecutions and sufferings that he had to endure in his service for God. You see it all over. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18 is a big list of it. In all his trials and tribulations, he did not lose heart because he kept his sight on the goal that was set before him. As must every believer who desires to fulfill God's will. In spite of envy, hatred, and even persecution from others, the spiritual leaders can rest assured that if God has chosen him or her for a task, no amount of opposition can nullify that destiny. Rather, God may use the opposition in working out his will. This is what we see. And I, I, I grieve with many of you. I know the evil that, is, that has happened to some of you, and my heart breaks for that. And I know the evil that many of you are doing and battling with. God will restore, establish, and strengthen you. Not me, not any coping mechanism in this world, not any restoration in what the seeming relationship that you thought would stay the way it was supposed to and isn't. No, God, God is the one who will restore and establish you. Don't look to anyone else. This does not mean that we do not walk with each other through this, but God will restore.
when we see an injustice like this done to Joseph, it can stir up all kinds of anger in us, right? Be like, how, how can someone be so evil? How can someone be so wrong and, and so mean and brings us to the questions like, God, how can you allow so much difficulty in this world? And I'm reminded that, that really, I'm actually amazed it's not, as, not worse than it is. Because I know my own heart, my own capabilities, and I have the Spirit of God living in me. I know how quick I can de- deny God and his, his goodness in my life and how quick I can turn to selfishness. Same is true of all of us. As followers of Jesus, we, we must stand up against evil. And that can work itself out in many injustices in our life. And we're going we're to talk uh, specifically about injustice more when it get, we get to Potiphar's wife. I feel like that fits that even better when we're looking at the story of, of Joseph's life. But, but church, here's the thing. Any sin that we do is an injustice to God. I mean, God deserves all praise, all adoration, complete glory. Anytime I live apart from bringing him glory, I am, I am perpetrating evil, injustice. I'm walking out that. And, and God has given us a, a way out, as 1 first, as as first Corinthians tells us. He's, he's telling us, like, run from temptation. Don't stand in it. Don't pet it. Don't train it. He's told us to, to be sober-minded. Like, look, this is going to happen. We, this, should, this should mean that we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trial because, well, it's going to happen. We long for the day where there is no more evil out in this world but even more when there's no more evil in our own hearts. That's the day that we long for. And church, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you are caring or walking with unrepentant sin, please hear this. God does not love you any less. He's incapable of doing so. But it is going to wreak havoc in your life because God has created you to walk holy with him. He has created you to bring glory to him. He is, he, is, he is enabling you by his spirit to walk with him. And so the, the, the spirit is at war with our flesh. So to just sit idly by when evil is happening is not what the church is supposed to do. We long for a day when there is no more evil in our own hearts or in this world. What Joseph's brothers did, I believe, is just a picture of what our own hearts do. Every day we battle with the sins in our own life. Again, we, we, we can just change the sin. If you, if you hear this today and you find yourself riddled with sin, I, I want to be a safe person to walk with you. Pastors want to be safe people to walk with you. I know many people in the church that want to walk with you. And it may mean that you lose absolutely everything in this world by confessing these things. But if you gain God, guys, there's nothing better. And right now, some of you are walking with such heavy shoulders because you're carrying stuff that you were never intended to carry. Definitely not supposed to carry if you believe in the cross and what Jesus has done for you. I also know that there are many of you today that are just feeling 
the weight of others' evil. My, my encouragement is not to be trite and be like, well, God will work it out. He did it for Joseph 13 years later. Mm-mm. My encouragement would take heart. He who began a work and you will complete it. And what they have meant for evil, God will use for good. And that's not based on my promises. That's based on his promises, which are the only promises worth listening to. I think we forget, at least I did this week. I made a statement and then had to check it with a few (laughs) men that I deeply respect to make sure that I wasn't going extra biblical. But I made the statement that I think um, as, as unjust as it was for Joseph's brothers to do what he did to him. Again, even if, even if Joseph was the meanest kid in the world, he didn't deserve that. As unjust as that was, it still isn't the greatest injustice out there. The greatest injustice out there was he who knew no sin became sin. Now, now think about it, and hear, hear me on this. We're going we're gonna to take communion here in a second, and so if the ushers can get up to pass it, we're going to start doing that. The ultimate work of God in Jesus was God embracing injustice to do away with injustice. Do you see how this works? Um, pastor said it this way. He said, Adam's sin was an immeasurably profound injustice since it offended the infinite holiness of God. To counter this injustice and thereby rescue us from the immeasurable judgment we deserve for it in order to restore us to a right standing with him, the Son of God had to engage this injustice fully, which meant he had to bear the full weight of this injustice and its ramifications to satisfy the infinite justice of the holy God. Specifically, he had to become sin for us, an inconceivably unjust act driven by God's infinite mercy to satisfy his infinite justice. It seems to me that as deeply unjust as Adam's sin was, what Jesus did in becoming sin for us was somehow an even greater injustice that superseded and conquered the first injustice. In this sense, Jesus engaged sin, evil, and injustice at its highest point and most extreme expression in order to conquer it forever. Jesus became sin so that we could become righteousness. God embraced this so that he could show us that he is not unaware of the injustice in the world. In fact, the very desires that you and I have for just for justice is, is in God who is just and righteous. It's found in him. He's the one that does this. So so when we come to this table, we are partaking of a meal that is a remembrance of God doing away with injustice at its fullest by conquering death. By the perfect son of God, holy son of God, taking the sin of man, paying the penalty that we deserve. The penalty, hear me on this church, the penalty for the sins that you are planning right now, the penalty for the sins that you have gone through, and the penalty for the sins that you are lying about and living with. Jesus paid for those on the cross. And so when we come to the the Lord's Supper, we get to stand not as his brothers did in this moment, where we can stand now saying, I know that I have no business, no right to be standing holy before God, but I am standing holy not because of what I am or am not doing, because of what he has done and who he is. Guys, this is the the best news when it comes to the 
evil that's in our hearts and around us and that's spilling out on us. As bad as it gets, and maybe it's going to get even worse for some of us, evil does not win. Evil has lost. Evil was taken care of. And as angry as we can get about the injustice in our life, we should be even more angry about the fact that God had to do what he did so that we could be whole. And equally thankful, thank you so much. And plan ahead. The cup of God's wrath that we all deserve, Jesus drinks on behalf of us so that we can drink the cup of redemption. To to come to the Lord's Supper, to come to a, a beautiful symbol of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through the grave, to sit at the right hand of God, to come there, with evil that is unrepentant in our heart, guys, is, is to make something so profound and beautiful, trite and small. To, to sit here, now hear, hear me on this, to sit here with sin, which, which First John should give us all like a, a good exhale. He who says they're without sin is a liar. <laughs> no one, you're gonna sin. He goes on and says, but when you do sin, you have the advocate in Jesus Christ. He's saying, my blood paid for that. So how, how foolish is it of us to hold on to something that Jesus has already paid for? How ridiculous is it of us to believe the lie that somehow we've hidden it from God as if he didn't see this one sin when Jesus went to the cross? Forgot to, oh, I forgot to pay for that judgment. Brandon, you're gonna have to pay for it. That's literally what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's like, Jesus need to be sacrificed again? No. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to this, we see and we recognize, like, church, yes, we are capable of much evil. Yes, much evil will be spilled on you. But we're capable of so much good. Not, not because we're awesome, but because he is. Not because I deserve it, but because he does. We can, we can walk in holiness. We don't have to walk with our pet lions trying to devour us. We can literally turn and, and say, go away. You have no power over me. And now hear me on this. You may experience deep battles for the entirety of your life with specific sins. That does not mean God is not capable. That does not mean he has forgotten you. It just means that that's how he's going to work out his plan of sanctification in you. And if it's your whole life, church, this life is but a vapor. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, I want us to come with a heart that is not um, performing perfectly, but a heart that is fully broken before the Lord. A heart that says, yeah, yeah, I know what you did. And I know you know what I did. And it's hard for me personally, Bren, to, to reconcile that sometimes, to think of what he has done for me in spite of what I do. Because this, this table isn't meant to repel us away, it's meant to draw us in. And anyone who bears the name of Jesus can, can run to this table fully embraced by a God who loves you deeply in spite of what you've done or will do 
or we'll do again, or we'll do again. But to come to that table without repenting, guys, that's just, that's just to make small the great thing that Jesus has done for us. And so I'm, I'm pleading not to make you feel guilty. I, I, pray, I pray that it is not me that makes you feel guilty. I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts. I'm pleading for you to, to, to come to the cross, to rest in his grace and his mercy. Stop holding on to bitterness or unrepentant sin. Stop giving the enemy that is already very, very good at deceiving a foothold in your life. Stop giving him an, an open door to walk through. To declare today that no more. And I know, I know some of you are going to be like, I don't want to do that because I've done that before. It's okay, God still loves you. <laughs> and he, he can free you from this. Church, would we come to this communion and take it seriously? Declaring that we need Jesus. We need his sacrifice. Just like all the people in the story of God do, we don't ever move on from this. And if this is, if this is causing you to, to wallow in shame or condemnation, just know that that is not from God. Romans is very clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you aren't in con- Christ Jesus, then you might be feeling condemnation. I would encourage you to repent. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Run to the only, only one that can save you. So we're going to give you guys some time. Um, I don't even know how much time because this wasn't planned. <laughs> we're going to give you some time to, um, to repent before the Lord. And then I will lead us in communion and we will sing to the Lord. My plea is that you would be free that you'd walk in the freeness that God has given you. And please, that you would be willing to confess. And, and maybe it's starting with God. And if you need to confess things that are really heavy, then we'll have uh, some pastors and a couple people back there that are safe to walk with. And we'll walk with you. And, and I, I promise you, as, as gross and as evil as your sin is, God's grace is bigger. You can't out-sin his grace. <laughs> And so I would encourage you to be free because right now there are many of us walking around with a limp, walking around being held back by the leashes of the lines that we are tied to because we can't run this race that is set before us because we're entangled in his sins and these weights. And I want us to be free as a church. And so, um, yeah, let me, let me just stop talking. <laughs> and give you guys some time to pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.